Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Niven Pasma. Niven is a strategy, leadership, and culture consultant who partners with clients in diverse industries around the world to ignite or reignite the discretionary energy of people and teams build an enabling culture, and develop meaningful strategies. Niven's career has spanned multiple sectors and roles, including being the CEO of the Business Women's Association of South Africa, CEO of Nurturing Orphans of AIDS for Humanity, NOAA, head of the South African Reserve Bank Academy, and head of leadership and culture for the Standard Bank Group, the largest bank in Africa. She is the author of the best-selling book, If You Don't Do Politics, Politics Will Do You, which we'll cover today. She is also a Harvard Business Review and Inc. contributor, a part-time tutor at Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and has been a guest lecturer at Stanford University. She's an expert facilitator on women's leadership development programs around the world and serves as the chair of the board of Cotlands, an organization that does cutting-edge work in the early childhood development sector in South Africa and beyond. She holds an executive MBA in systems thinking, a postgraduate diploma in future studies, and a BA in English political science. Niven was awarded the Archbishop II Leadership Fellowship in 2007, and she is currently in the final stages of completing her PhD. She has served as a reserve police officer for two years and lives in Johannesburg with her partner. Niven, welcome. Thanks for joining the show today. I appreciate your time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to get to know you a little bit and looking forward to diving into the world of organizational politics. So let's start with that. You've researched this topic. You've focused your PhD on this topic. You've written a book on it. Are politics inherent in all organizations? Do you want the long answer or the short answer, JR? Let's start with a short answer. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's go to the slightly longer answer then. I mean, I think it's important to qualify that answer with a definition of what politics are, because I think most people have a very single definition of politics, which is it's the toxic, it's the Machiavellian, it's the destructive. It's the stuff that happens that any sane person would run like hell from. And of course, that's a part of politics. Absolutely. But the definition that I like to use or the definition is contested. So let me just say that up front. Definition I like to use is the one that says it's about the informal, it's the unofficial, it's the behind the scenes activities that happen as we try to sell ideas, get information, accrue power, get things done. I mean, really the list of reasons why we do it is endless. 
But it's all of the stuff that happens in that informal and official space. It's like somebody said to me, it's the stuff in your job description. It's the white space between the words. That's where politics. And I like to say to people that, you know, all teams, all departments, all organizations have got two sides. Yes, of course, they've got the formal, the stuff that is written and clear and articulated. But there's always the informal. And that stuff is not clear, written or articulated anywhere. And you can choose to play only in the formal. I mean, it's your career, it's your life, make the choices you want to. But frankly, in my opinion, that's like playing soccer on half the field, rugby on half the pitch, tennis on half the court. I mean, the sporting metaphors can go on because those formal and those informal exist and coexist hand in hand. And to your point, humans are social creatures, right? And so Mm -hmm. because we're social creatures, anytime you get a group of us together in whatever context, there will be social dynamics and there's interplay that's inherent in that. And you can use those realities for good, or you can use those realities for not good. Yeah. Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford Graduate School of Business, I think says it well. He says, you know, if we want more power to be used for good, we need more good people to have power. Not an either or dichotomy. It has to be a much more interesting, nuanced, complex both and. Definitely needs to be more of a complex both and, not so much of an either or, I win, you lose kind of construct, that's for sure. You talk in in your book about the fact that there are different levels of politics in different organizations. I think you cite some research by Kathleen Kelly Reardon from USC on this, sort of from minimal to the very toxic. What is that range and how does that manifest itself and what people experience day to day? So I think what she says is exactly right, where she speaks about the spectrum from minimally to moderately to highly politicized. So in 25 years of working both in organizations and as a consultant to organizations, I have to say I've only ever seen one minimally politicized organization. There are others that get trotted out. And certainly the one that I work for as a consultant may be a little bit more politicized in the actual living of the organization than what I see as a consultant. But that's the one that I've seen. And in minimally politicized organizations, you've got the in crowd and the out crowd, but it's minimal. You've got things that happen behind the scenes, but again, as the name implies, it's minimal. So pretty much what you see is what you get. And then it ramps up to moderately where these things become more rampant and then highly politicized organizations. And in my experience, if you're working in a large organization, if you're working in an old organization, in one where people have been there for years, so memories and relationships go back decades. Heavens, if you're working in a matrixed organization, Just know that it's going to be highly politicized. Again, as you said, as I said, for good or for bad, but it is going to be highly politicized because there's all kinds of things, given the nature and the complexity of the people in the organization, that aren't written down, that aren't codified. And so what I always talk about in the work that I do is, look, those things are normal. Suck it up. Okay. Yeah. Kind of match your political style and appetite with the degree of politicization that you're going into. But these things are normal and you can't escape them. You can just find yourself somewhere on the spectrum. What is not normal is what she calls pathologically politicized organizations, what I call toxic organizations, or even teams or parts of organizations. And obviously, toxic is a synonym for poison, and poison is designed to kill you. And I am not speaking metaphorically, and I'm certainly not speaking hyperbolically when I say that these organizations will kill people. Not necessarily immediately and not necessarily in ways they can put their fingers on. But the stories that I've heard over the years that I've been lecturing about this, about how toxic toxic can get, frankly, it's the only thing that makes me grateful for having been in one toxic environment. Because had I not 
I think I would have listened to some of these stories with a little bit of incredulity and maybe some degree of frustration, thinking it couldn't possibly have been that bad. Can't yeah. you snap yourself together and sparkle up and get over it? Well, trust me, I've got plenty of sparkle, plenty of agency. It, it is that bad because it's essentially unrelenting abuse. It's abuse and fear and gaslighting. When you're in that kind of environment, there's no sucking it up. Then it's yeah. run like hell, okay? Because you're, you're very unlikely to change that kind of environment. I've heard of one instance where someone's able to change it, but for the rest, it's abuse and abuse only gets worse. And what's amazing is that some of these organizations last for decades yeah. you know, in those kind of environments. And you just wonder how does level of dysfunction exist for so long? How do people yeah. survive it? You went through it from what I've read when your description of it, that it took a real toll on you. And I'm sure yes. that you're not different from most other people who are in those kinds of situations. No, I think it does take an enormous toll. And I read some research a while ago that said, look, if you've been in a traumatic environment, and of course there are exceptions, but generally if you're in something that is analogous to abuse, you can expect that the recovery from it will take between two and five times the amount of time. So if you're in it for a year, you can expect the responses, the physical, the somatic, the emotional, the intellectual responses to last for between two to five years. It can be longer, it can be less. But, you know, that really made me sit up and take notice. Because like I say, I would never have thought that something that only lasted for a few months could take that kind of toll. And it really did. Fortunately, I got into other situations. Fortunately, it wasn't the last experience of my career or the only or the first. But good grief, it was a nightmare. Yeah, and certainly it doesn't take long, to your point, for that to become so much of your identity. This is not like a years in the making thing. I mean, it can happen yeah. in just a few short months. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what people often ask me as well is how do these people who perpetuate toxic environments, how do they last for so long? And there's an interesting book called Snakes in Suits written by two psychiatrists. And be very clear, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not making clinical diagnoses. But what I'm taking from their book is the degree of psychopathy that is inherent in organizations. And this is the functional psychopathy. I mean, if it's clinical, you often end up in prison because you do all manner of egregious things. But what I took from that book and from my own experience is that people who are abusive are incredibly good at managing upwards. So they manage impressions and make it seem as though the only problem is this useless team that they're dealing with, because they're certainly not the problem. In fact, they're the ones who are trying to rescue the situation. So they're very good at managing impressions upwards. They're often very good at getting results. I mean, those results often happen over a whole bunch of dead bodies, but people don't look further than the results. And they are very good at managing the airtime that they have with people in power. And then that, of course, is a vicious cycle because you're managing the airtime, you're managing the impressions, you're getting results. It becomes a single story again, and it becomes their story. If I look at the character that I worked for, and he cut a swathe of destruction through all manner of organizations, but he's still mm -hmm. being employed. And he's left organizations, teams, departments behind him, all in shape. And he continues. Which is incredible. And I do think there probably are some pathologically politicized organizations that are able to still function, right? They deliver good results on the backs of a lot of people, but they are able to succeed organizationally, there are yes. others that are just, and maybe this happens more in government type settings where you don't necessarily have the same sort of profit and loss construct that will drive whether you continue to exist. But I mean, there it seems like there are certainly others out there that really don't deliver results. And yet 
the toxicity just persists and persists and persists and persists. Yeah, no, it's quite why and how and what people get used to and the counterfactual of what could have been when companies are happy with good enough. I mean, this is the million dollar question that probably calls for a few bottles of wine as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So stepping back though, I mean, you've got, as you say, people can use this for good, they can use it for bad, but the reality is you need to learn to play the game if you're going to be successful. You talk about another researcher, Marie McIntyre, who describes four political types. I love her words, winners, martyrs, sociopaths, and dimwits. No mincing of titles there. Talk about how those four play out, because that's ultimately, that's kind of her framework for thinking about how you bucket people who play the political game. Yeah. So I'm glad you liked her model as much as I did. In fact, it's, it comes from a more academic article, which does mince its words a little bit more, but mm. probably wouldn't have quite as much sticking power. So the reason I included her model, as with all models in my book, is despite the truth that, listen, all models are wrong, some are just useful. And right. what I found useful about this model was it focuses on two things. It focuses on the personal and the professional, and it focuses on your behavior. And when I came across it, I thought, gosh, if I had seen this model at a time when I was being a complete dimwit, I think it would have gotten my attention because it's not about your intention. It's not about my rationalizations and justifications for why I was acting the way I was acting. If I thought about what people were seeing and how I was showing up, I think I would have thought twice about how I was showing up. So like I say, it's about your behavior and if it's benefiting or harming yourself and or the business. And really, if your behavior is harming you and it's harming the business, well, then you are squarely in the dimwit, absolute twit space. If it's helping you and helping the business, well, then you're far more in the winner space. And then it also gets interesting around the sociopath and, and the martyr. So the martyr is it's all about the business. You know, me, myself, my intention to run marathons, to travel, to do whatever, well, that just needs to take a backseat to the business. Right. Well, this can be your choice. I mean, you're entitled to make that choice, but especially with groups predominantly of women, I see that that model get their attention and I see that quadrant get their attention. And this feeling of, you know, I'm not sure I ever consciously made this choice. I think it's kind of become a creeping non-choice habit. I'm not sure that this is a habit I particularly savor anymore. That gets their attention. And then the sociopath, of course, it's all about you. Right. So what I emphasize once I share this model is, look, we all have the shadow sides to ourselves and we all have situations and stresses and people that will bring out the best and the worst in us. So none of us are ever one thing. None of us hopefully are only purely sociopathic or purely dimwit. We can go from one meeting to the next and be different players in different quadrants. But what's valuable about this is, like I say, to think about what people are seeing in your behavior, what they're inferring from it, and what situations bring out the best or the worst in you, and which quadrant in the context you currently find yourself in are you predominantly in? And is it one you want to be in or not? And if it is, well, how do you keep it? And if it's not, how do you start to change it? Which then gets a little bit into power and the linkage between power and politics. You know, you can have power, and you point this out in the book positional power or personal power. And there are different sources of both. And I was hoping you could maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. So the original work on power was done by French and Raven back in the 1950s. And they spoke about how there's numbers, there's various sources of power. So expert power obviously comes from expertise. Legitimate power comes from a position that's assumed to have power and accrued to it. 
referent power is your individual charisma, which you take independent of positions. And so the list goes on. But the point is around all power, again, coming back to your point, is is what it gets used for, which is why any conversation around power is one that I always want to bring in Martin Luther King's quote, where he said that power without love is reckless and abusive. I mean, frankly, I could think of a few stronger words, but let's go with his words. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. And I think that this is something that when people get it, but I mean really get it, can make a profound impact in how they lead and how they think about themselves. Because you know, I think in most organizations, speaking about love doesn't come particularly easily or naturally. But I mean, okay, fine, take away love and just replace it with care, deep care for the work that you're doing, the people you're doing it with, the people you're doing it for. If you don't have that care, I'm not totally sure what you're doing at work every day, and I'm not totally sure what you're doing in your career. But that care is not enough. I mean, only care and you're running a support group, but only power to make people jump and ask how high when they do. Well, then mm-hmm. you're running a boot camp. You know, have those, those two together, and I think you become quite a powerful leader, an exemplary leader, and someone who leaves a legacy that would hopefully be the kind of legacy you want to leave, not just for yourself and your own career, but in the lives of the people who work with you, who work for you. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, you use the phrase and others certainly have used this phrase, empty suit. McIntyre kind of describes it in the context of how much positional power do I have? How much persuasive power do I have? The empty suit's the person who really doesn't have any persuasive power, but does have the positional power. Nobody wants to work for an empty suit. You want to work for people who actually will have that persuasive capability. In some cases, you're probably actually better off working for people who have lower positional power, but a higher persuasive power, because they will carry people with their words and their emotions and their charisma or expertise or whatever the source of it may be. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point that people don't often pick up on, but absolutely in her model, people with low influence and low power are either weaklings or empty suits, like you said. But the dividing line there is the degree of influence. And then high influence, either with low positions or high positions, is where it starts to become interesting. So high influence are persuaders. And I have not yet ever had a group not get this right when I ask them who are the classic persuaders in organizations. And it's always personal assistants, executive assistants, because they're the gatekeepers. As Mm. someone said, they're the necks that turn the heads. So if you underestimate a peer, you underestimate anyone in a gatekeeping role at your peril. And then similarly, people with high position and high influence, well, they can make all manner of things happen. And what I stress is, look, I never use the words good or bad when it comes to your network. I talk about more effective, less effective. And absolutely, an empty suit, whole bunch of positional formal power, but no real influence, way less helpful in your network than a persuader. And in fact, I had a delegate just the other day say that she was working for a manager, really liked and respected this person, thought they were fantastic in all manner of ways, their values, their integrity, their technical skills, and she was applying for a transfer. So I thought, okay, just help me connect the dots here because I'm not totally sure how this is working. And she said, this person is incredibly impressive in all the ways I've just mentioned, but they refuse to acknowledge that to be effective in this organization, you need to socialize your ideas. You need to have the meetings before the meetings. You need to continue the conversations after the meetings. And she dismisses all of that stuff as politics. And she's right. It is political. But refusing to engage in it means that she can't get the resources and the support for her team. She can't 
lay the groundwork for them, such that this delegate was actually, despite her affection and respect, moving to another team where she could be more effective. So in that case, it sounds like the person is an empty suit if you were going to put them into that framework, but an empty suit by their own doing. Some people are empty suits just because they just don't have the makeup to be power players. Yes. Um, Some people, though, sounds like this person might have been in that category, choose not to exercise their ability to be influential. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And that's where I start to say to people, in fact, I don't start, I always say to people, look, you can make whatever choice you want, but make sure it's an informed choice and make sure that you understand the risks in those choices. So when people make a choice like that, not to get involved in politics, I often find it's because they don't fully understand the breadth and the depth and the scope of politics. And they don't understand quite the trade-offs because they think that their work will speak for itself. Well, in an ideal world, it would. In this world, it won't. People will speak, or in this case, not. Absolutely. And it's certainly, and I've described this with some people that I've interviewed on the podcast before, I came into the working world believing in the concept of a meritocracy. And it doesn't work that way. And I started in the military. I probably should have known better because military is typically a very political organization given just the unquestioned allegiance to hierarchy and some of the Mm -hmm. other things that make it harder for the organization to really be more egalitarian in the way that they approach gathering input, making decisions and things like that. But certainly for me, it was a real learning, probably in my late 20s, that that was just not the way the world worked. That Over the years, I've certainly seen it play out in some very different ways, including some mean-spirited ways. But you can't rely on your technical ability alone, hoping that you will get noticed. you got to socialize. You've got to market what you're doing. It's Every job has a sales component. And that's mm. really what it's about, is that influence. Mm. No, I, I think you put it perfectly. I think one of the things that happens when people hear that this is not the world works is they revert to cynicism and despair. Well, mm. certainly that's one reaction. I hope to move people to somewhere in the middle somewhere between cynicism and despair on the one hand, and then rampant naivety and idealism on the other hand. I mean, look, I wake up in the morning every day to do work that I think matters, that I think changes things for the better. But I'm not naive and I'm not an idealist around that. I'm somewhere in the middle, I hope, which is still an idealist, but a pragmatic idealist. You know, so this is how it works. Okay, so how am I going to be effective to do what I need to do, what I want to do, to have the most positive impact in the most lasting way. And so, yeah, I mean, I think knowing that this is how the world works uh, can be a call to action, and hopefully it is. Now that you say that, I think it's also useful because we define meritocracy so narrowly, and we tend to define meritocracy as the person who can do the best technical job. Well, if you define merit as broader than that, the person who can do the best technical job and who builds up and spends time getting the best support, well, that's an alternative additional form of merit, which frankly is part of your job, particularly the more senior you get. Because what I often say is, look, as you get more senior, it's the people below you who are doing the actual technical work. You're navigating the landscape. So that is merit if you're doing it properly. It's a demerit if you're not doing it properly and reverting back to what you started out as, which is what the people below you should be doing. Yeah. Another way in which that manifests itself, remember the exact words that you use, but essentially the best idea isn't always the best technical idea. The best idea may be the idea that has the best chance of getting implemented. And it's a different way. If I'm optimizing for what's technically the best, 
I may choose X, but if I'm optimizing for what I think will actually drive some form of improvement, I may choose something different because it has a higher likelihood of being adopted. There are certainly many examples where the less good solution is the one that took hold for whatever reasons. And you can't deny that that's also part of the equation, right? So also part of the evaluating merit. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, I've got a case study that I've put together now on blockbusters. Yeah. I mean, I've been in strategy my whole career. I thought I knew the story. It's the typical story, right? Nokia, BlackBerry, Kodak, these huge incumbents, a strategic and business model, obsolescence, arrogance. I mean, the story goes on. It's a story of power and politics, because if you look at the strategy that John Antioco wanted to bring in, in response to Netflix, he planned to start streaming three years before Netflix uh, did. Netflix started streaming in 2007. His total access strategy, along with two other key elements, was brought to the attention of the market in 2004. It was politics and power at the board level that meant he couldn't implement it. It meant that he left and Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, you certainly see that play out. I mean, Clay Christensen's work, The Innovator's Dilemma, highlight example after example of where people clung to the present at the expense of the future, right? And Blockbuster is just one of those examples. BlackBerry, you mentioned BlackBerry. They're another one. You know, nobody's going to want to use a virtual keypad. They all like having the little tactile buttons that they can push. And in the end, now we all use phones that have virtual screen-based keypads and Blackberries are pretty much gone. What's interesting about Blockbusters is they could have come to market three years before Netflix based on their strategy. But there was a power struggle between John Antioco and Carl Icahn, who's one of the major shareholders. Mm. Despite the evidence, despite the data from test cases, it didn't go forward. But that's probably a whole long case study for another podcast. (laughs) We'll save those for another podcast. In the middle part of the book, you get into the four skills that really are important to political success, interpersonal influence, social awareness, networking, and the last ones, which is my favorite, apparent sincerity. Not sincerity, but apparent sincerity. Yes. Start with interpersonal influence and talk a little bit about what you mean by that. We've covered a little bit, but maybe just pull it all together. So this comes from the work of Gerald Ferris and his colleagues, and they've really been the leading proponents of these four elements of politics and done enormous amounts of research over the years around this. So interpersonal influence is pretty much as the name suggests, your ability to get other people to want to do what you want to do. And coming back to your point around apparent sincerity, I'm reading another book around politics now. The moment it looks like you're being political, the moment it looks like you're pulling levers, people will see politics for what it is. If it seems effortless, if it seems incredibly sincere, and it may well be sincere, it doesn't have to not be sincere, your influence becomes exponentially greater because people think and believe and take you at face value that, that you just want to get the best things done for everyone. Like I said, that may well be the case. It may not be the case. But the point is people take that sincerity at face value. And then the social astuteness is about absolutely being able to read the room in ways that others can't, not being the quintessential bull in a china shop, not necessarily always saying exactly what you think. And Jeffrey Fairford at Stanford has some interesting thoughts around this, because when I say to people that it's social astuteness and knowing what to say and what not to say, oh, well, that's not being authentic. Well, Jeffrey Fairford says it well. He says, well, actually, being authentic requires that you are authentic to what the situation requires not to what you necessarily think or feel in that moment. Often you've got to transcend, particularly in a leadership position. You've got to actually transcend what you really think or feel and say what the situation requires of you. 
And so often in these conversations, and we can get into fat conversations when I have workshops and long sessions, a lot of this requires unlearning because people are very dogmatic about this, very clear on what's right and what's wrong, what's authentic and what's not authentic, and that authentic is good and not authentic is bad. Again, can we get a bit more pragmatic in between the dogmatism and understand right and effective are not always the same thing. If you're in a place that matters to you, doing things that matter, focus on being effective rather than being right. Yeah, it's well said. You talk about stakeholder analysis being an important part of the equation, really needing to sort out in that bucket of interpersonal relationships, who's a friend, who's an ally, who's a foe, who's an adversary. You you even talk about somebody who goes through this exercise once a month, which was a very disciplined way of thinking about it, certainly probably more than what most of us are doing. But talk a little bit about why that stakeholder piece is is so important. I think for a, a number of reasons, but primarily it's about, as a colleague of mine says, it's about quieting your own cleverness. So what do I mean by that is I think so many of us can see ourselves, our role, our answer, our skills as the center of the universe. Well, if you brought me in to do this job and you ask for the answer and I'm giving you the answer, that should be enough. But coming back and amplifying the point you and I made earlier, it happens in a context. It happens in a context of vested interests. It happens in a context of different perspectives. And particularly when you're being brought in to change something, if you think that the right technical answer is going to be enough to make people throw up their hands and clutch their their hearts in gratitude that you finally come along to give them the answer, well, then you're woefully naive, okay? You have to understand what the world looks like from other people's perspective, what's in it for them. And even when they've brought you in to change things, how many times I've seen, no, 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 we need to change. Absolutely, we need to change. But not me, not in this way, them in that way. And so unless you are really having the humility, having the curiosity, taking the time and putting in the energy to understand what's going on for other people, people who have the power to block or support what you're doing, you're going to probably hit your head up against a whole bunch of brick walls and you won't understand why. I mean, I can certainly think of times in my career where I was absolutely clear, absolutely right. But I didn't take into account what people were going to lose by doing what I said. And guess what? They had more power to block what I was saying than I had power to make it happen. And so it went nowhere. Yeah, you said it a minute ago, just the right answer and the effective answer. And we can all probably look back on situations in our life and say, I told you so, I knew I was right. At the end of the day, the question is, why didn't it happen then, right? And and it can't just be because of them. They wouldn't listen. And I think that's a piece that a lot of people, particularly people early in their careers, don't really get that you not have to come up with the idea. You have to influence other people that it is the best idea. You have to make sure it actually gets implemented. Coming up with the idea is a theoretical exercise in the scheme of things. Are you putting it perfectly, Joe? I think you should write a book on this. (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to try and write a book on politics, but certainly. (laughs) This was somebody said to me the other day. They said, you know what they say about writing books, don't you? And I said, I don't know who they is and I don't know what they say. You write the book that you were meant to read. I'm like, oh, well, that is exactly true. <laughs> yeah, I can see that too. You talk about leverage and the leverage equation in terms of how you have to sort of 
figure all this out. There are reasons that you might have leverage, reasons that the other person might have leverage. This gets a little bit into the, the linkage between how politics play out and the negotiations that go on. It'd be great if you could maybe provide a little bit of color on that leverage piece and how it fits in. Yeah. Well, I suppose a nice way to do that is to recount a conversation I had with a woman a few months ago. She was a delegate on a workshop and she said, look, could we have a coffee? So I said, sure. So we had a conversation around the frustrations that she was experiencing in work and how she was trying to convince these managers of what was going on and they just wouldn't listen and had tried all manner of technical ways of engaging them and just wasn't getting anywhere. And I said to her, do you remember the section on leverage? She said, vaguely. I said, well, that's part of the problem here. I said, because there's more leverage that you have in this situation than you realize. You're not using it to your advantage. Let me be really clear. I'm not saying cry wolf and I'm not saying throw your toys out the cot. But what I'm saying is they came to you about this job. So they want you and they want your skills and they want your reputation. That gives you leverage, okay? Because yes, you want to be there, but actually they need you more than you need them because your skills are scarce. Secondly, you are a woman. And this is in an industry that is dominated by men and they recognize that this is a challenge and they're wanting to address it. So a woman with skills in an industry that needs those skills and needs more women to have those skills. And thirdly, you're an Indian woman in a country like South Africa where Affirmative action and employment equity is not an opt-in. It isn't a legal requirement because of the history of this country. And so a group of male, white, very smart, very decent leaders are realizing that something needs to shift, are wanting to make that shift, are bringing you in as the vanguard of that shift, not as a token exercise. You have very highly sought-after skills. But all of these things are giving you leverage to start to push the agenda a lot more strongly than you are. You're trying to get them to understand it in the nicest, most diplomatic way. And of course, there's plenty of space for niceness and diplomacy, but it's not getting you anywhere. I think you need to start playing a little bit more hardball, using the sources of leverage that you have to get them to understand that this is now becoming a go, no-go decision for you in terms of staying or not staying. And so, Mm. like I say, you're not crying wolf around this. You're getting them to understand with the leverage you have at your disposal quite why your voice matters, why your voice is different to the voices they've heard before, but that's why it matters, and getting them to want to listen to it because it's now becoming untenable for you. The counter argument, and you're hitting on a probably a particularly sensitive example, the counter argument is, well, I don't want to get the job or I don't want to play the woman card or the person of color card. I want to get the job or get whatever on the merits, not because of gender or skin color. Yes. But I think your argument is you should still be taking it into account in terms of playing the hand that you're dealt. Yes. No, exactly. You got the job on merits. You know what you're doing and you're technically highly sought after. That was kind of entry to the game though. You know, Mm. anybody would have gotten the job on those standards by those requirements. What you bring in is they need you because of the package that you bring demographically And to ignore that would be as unwise as overusing it and thinking it's the only thing you bring or having it be the only thing you bring. You describe some mistakes that people make in terms of practicing politics. We don't have time to cover all of them, but maybe one or two that you want to highlight in particular. No, we definitely don't have time to cover all of them because it's like Einstein apparently said when he was apparently asked, what's the difference between genius and stupidity? 
his answer ostensibly was, well, genius has its limits. <laughs> so yeah, you know, when it comes to doing spectacularly stupid things to your career, I get more and more data points every week. I think the first one is around leverage, overestimating your leverage. Underestimating your leverage will be an opportunity cost. So all kinds of things, salary, yes. promotions, other opportunities will pass you by if you don't recognize you've got leverage and you don't use it to amplify your position, amplify your ask. But overestimating your leverage can really come back to bite you. You may have all manner of power, you may have all manner of influence, but you may not have as much as you think. And if you're counting on having as much as you think and it's less than, that can really blow up in your face. I think the second one is one that I made, and I was talking about it quite recently, so it's top of mind. It's when you become one person's person. Yes. So I very firmly hitched my wagon uh, to someone once, and he was still to this day in 25 years of working, the most astonishing leader I've ever met in all manner of ways. But I made a mistake once when I said to him, he was on Exco, Ugh, I really don't have the energy or the bandwidth or the stomach to deal with the politics of Exco. Can you just run interference for me? Can you give me that air cover and can you deal with them so that I can get on with the work? It was a mistake of me to ask. It was a mistake of him to say yes, because actually what I should have done was ask for his help in building those relationships with Exco. Because things change in organizations, he was the yeah. flavor of the month and then suddenly he got moved laterally and suddenly I had no support at Exco because I didn't have him there giving me that air cover. And so had I wanted to hitch my wagon to his career for the rest of my career, fine. Then I would have just followed him wherever he went. But mm. I didn't. And it wasn't feasible. What I should have done was had far more broad networks and far more support rather than just counting on his support and him doing that for me. That section really resonated with me. I have a different situation where I would certainly look back and say that I overly hitched my wagon to somebody. And I feel like in the scheme of things, I probably was putting in the effort to have relationships otherwise. But when this person sort of not really crossed the line, but just fell out of favor with the most senior people in the company, everybody around that person was damaged goods. Yeah, and yeah. if you didn't have a really strong support network, you were essentially going to be collateral damage and how that situation played out. That's essentially what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And it certainly taught me a lesson of being not overly connected to one person and trying to maintain that broad network because there are lots of ways them moving is one. In my case, this person essentially was forced into retirement because the road just kind of ran out. and. Yeah. For the rest of us, it meant scramble, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Collateral damage is exactly it. Last question on politics, and then I want to spend time we have left on your background, but netting it all out, what are your overall recommendations to the people that you have in your workshops and otherwise about how to develop their political strategy? So I take it two steps back. Actually, you're never going to develop a political strategy if you don't have political will. So bust some of the myths around this. The myth mm -hmm. that you can either be a good person or play politics. No, there are many ways to play many kinds of politics. The myth that you're going to escape this. When celestial music starts to play, you'll be in a place where you don't have to do this. You'll never be in that place. So just start yeah. to get smart about it. This stuff doesn't make a difference to your career. It makes all the difference and so on and so forth. So I think if you can develop political will, 
then political skill is the next part. How do you start to get intentional about this? And it doesn't matter that you're an introvert. It doesn't matter that this stuff doesn't come naturally. You may well start out as unconsciously incompetent, and then you move to consciously incompetent, but you can get better at this stuff. Then I think you start to think about your strategy. And of course, it's not necessarily linear. These things can happen in all manner of ways, and they can go backwards and forwards. But you're not going to develop that strategy if you don't understand and broaden your horizon of something that you may have a very narrow understanding of. A good point. So let's switch gears, talk about your background. You started at Monitor, so you did a few years in consulting, and then you became CEO of the Businesswomen's Association of South Africa. And that was at a pretty young age. How did you land that role? <laughs> Yes, very young age. I wouldn't have hired me. How they hired me is anybody's guess. I loved consulting, but I thought to the point you made earlier, it's the technical answers on the slides. And that's great. But I have a sense that it's much harder in the doing than just mm-hmm. coming up with the analysis. And I think the the false snobbery and arrogance of consultants persists to this day. I think consultants tend to think that they're the smartest people in the room and the people who actually make things happen are the kind of knuckle draggers. Actually, I was approached about that role. It was networks. And I actually said in a lecture earlier today that I didn't look for a job other than my first one at Monitor. After that, they all came to me. So the BWA was looking for somebody who could give it a go. I was spoken of highly. So off we went. Pretty impressive. You were still in your 20s at that point, right? 29. And then you went to become the CEO of NOAA, Nurturing Orphans of AIDS for Humanity, that completely different kind of nonprofit role. Yeah. must have been emotionally demanding just given the breadth of the AIDS crisis in Africa. Yeah, it was. We were one of the largest NGOs. We were taking care of 30,000 orphaned and vulnerable children a day, excess government grants, food, all manner of things, helping their caregivers in very rural, remote areas of South Africa. But I mean, this was happening even in the city. So the estimate was we had about a million orphaned and vulnerable children in South Africa. And that was just South Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa was, was really facing a crisis. And yeah, on the face of it, it was very different. I wasn't going to the opening of parliament. I wasn't going to the budget speech. I wasn't in the business press. But deep down, it was the same. You know, It was people who cared deeply about what they were doing and were doing everything in their power to make things better for those around them. It wasn't in a business context. It was in a community context. It wasn't women with their MBAs from Harvard and Wharton. It was rural community workers who may not have completed high school. But the values were the same. And I'm forever grateful that I learned the quality and the criticality of tough empathy, which is something that was spoken about in an article by Goffey and Jones years ago. The article was called, Why Should Anyone Be Led By You? Why? So a hell of a question. I only got asked that question in my 40s after being in leadership positions most of my life. But they speak about this idea of tough empathy. And I referred to it earlier, the power and the love. You work with grandmothers who are raising grandchildren, child-headed households. So we had 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds raising siblings. You can't not have deep care and love. But if it's only care and love, I didn't have a sustainable organization that was going to get funding year after year. And so I'm forever grateful that I learned that both are possible, toughness and empathy, compassion and accountability. Yeah. I mean, it's akin to the expression tough love, right? There is a both and in there. Yeah, Absolutely. So you spent some time in those two nonprofits, then you went into the banking sector, first with the Reserve Bank and then with a private sector bank. How was that part of your career and how did it kind of build on your experience and skill set? Excellent question. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> I she took a year off after Noah because I could feel I'm this close to burning out. And I thought, gosh, you yeah. know, if I fall 
Cliff and burnout. It's going to take a while to put the pieces together. So I actually did nothing except decimate savings and uh, do, read for a year. And then after mm. a year, my fingers are itching to start working again, and I'm ready to. And so again, it was networks. The governor of the reserve banks, our equivalent of the Federal Reserve, our central bank, had known me at the Businesswomen's Association, and she was looking for people who could come in and help the central bank after the financial crisis, the global financial crisis. All central banks really had to rethink their culture. And so she was looking for people who had no experience of central banking because most people had been there their whole career and then spoke to me. I said, you want somebody with no understanding of or experience of central banking? Oh, well, then I'm perfect because I have no clue how this stuff works. But I was immensely proud to be there. It's a very impressive place. And I had three different roles, strategy through to learning. And then your time at Standard Bank, that must have been a contrast just going from public sector, private sector, regulator to, you know, to uh, (laughs) regulated. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, anybody who's worked at the central bank will obviously get the attention of the commercial banks. And I particularly wanted to do work that wasn't just South African. I wanted to do African and global work. And Standard Bank is the largest bank by assets in Africa. It has operations in China and in the UK and all through Africa. And again, you know, I wasn't clear that I wanted to go to a bank or Standard Bank at all. I had five things that I was looking for. One, a more global role. Two, working with people I liked and respected. Three, having a role that was enormous and that if it worked, was really going to change things. I forget the fourth one, but the fifth one was I wanted to be a little bit scared every day, not sure Mm -hmm. that I was going to be able to do it. So I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. And then again, a colleague came to me from Santa Bank and said, look, this is what we're looking for. And like all your roles, it's a blank piece of paper. There is no job description. You'd be the first one to do it. And that, I think, sends some people screaming in the opposite direction. But I love that. Give me a blank yeah. piece of paper and I will figure it out. I like those kind of roles too. And I've taken certainly taken some of them over the years. We're running out of time. We haven't even covered other things. You run your own consulting group. You teach. You write. You're a reserve police officer. You still do nonprofit work. You've done so many things. You continue to do so many things. How are you able to get so much done without burning yourself out? Hmm. I mean, I suppose the flippant and easy answer is that I don't have children. I think that makes a profound difference in how much time you have. But then again, I look at friends and colleagues of mine precisely because they have children, they're able to accomplish even more. I think the deeper answer, though, is I haven't ever done anything that felt like I've got to. Everything that I do, I get to do a PhD now because I want to. Friends of mine are like, why do you need to? That's the point. I don't need to. I want to. Yeah. Get to take on a nonprofit role because I get given that opportunity, I get to spend a year reading. I get to spend four years backpacking after high school and just figuring out myself in the world and how it works at 17. I think when you are pulled to do things and there are things in life and work that you can't not do, or conversely, that you can't believe you get to do, I think that gives you energy. I don't feel like I was ever pushed by my parents, you have to study, pushed by a manager, you have to get a degree. I chose to do these things. And I suppose I intersperse my work with all manner of other things that give me deep joy. I travel a lot. I read. I spend time with the people that I love. And this is a lot easier to do, of course, when you're self-employed. But it was precisely because I thought I want want to never fill in a leave form again. And I want to be working into my 80s on my own terms that I decided a few years ago, no, I'm going to back myself and I'm going to work for myself. And none of the roles that I took on ever felt like I was sacrificing anything. They felt like immense privileges. But suddenly five years ago, I thought if I take on another role now, 
no matter how enormous the scope, no matter how enormous the opportunity, if I do it now, it feels like I'm going to be sacrificing autonomy and variety in a way that feels like I'll be sacrificing oxygen. And so I can't. And so I don't. Yeah. And it's good that you've put yourself in a position where you're able to do that, right? Being self-employed, creating that whole ecosystem of things you're doing that allow you to sort of sustain yourself financially and keep you going intellectually and emotionally. Yeah. Any final career advice that you want to share for our audience? There was a Gloria Vanderbilt quote that was sent to me a a while ago. And um, somebody, so what it said was she never knew what she wanted to do, but she always knew the woman she wanted to be. And I suppose it reminds me of some advice I gave to a good friend years ago who had a very particular idea of her life, kind of person she'd marry, the kind of work that she'd do, the kind of place that she'd live, all these things. And it was a beautiful picture. I mean, we've known each other since primary school. So it had been a longstanding picture. And I said to her, you know what, in my life, the one thing I've realized is don't get too attached to the picture. Think about what you want to feel and then be open to whatever picture that feeling comes in. And I think that's as true about relationships and where you live as it is about the work that you do. I think mm-hmm. we can attach to the labels, we can attach to the trajectory, we can attach to our parents telling their friends with immense pride what we do. And those things may well correspond to what you want to feel and the impact that you want to have. But when they don't, focus on the impact and what you want to wake up feeling every morning. And then, you know what, the form it comes in and the form that it takes may well surprise you. Some good words of wisdom to close on. So we got a heavy dose of office politics uh, to to cover today and a bit about your background as well. So the time went very quickly. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you again. No, I appreciate all the homework you did. I didn't have any idea that you'd know so much about me. So thank you. (laughs) I try to come in prepared. So (laughs) have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Sarah. You too. I want to thank Niven for joining me today to dive into organizational politics and to discuss her own very unique career journey and some of the things that she's learned along the way. A lot of wisdom in there right at the end. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.